You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Yes, 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 yes. Music Biz 101 more on Brave New Radio. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp, not with Dr. Esteban Marconi. He is on assignment somewhere in the deep tropics of Florida. But instead, with me tonight is the wonderful, very kind, and very affluent Jenna Vitali. Hello, Jenna Vitali. <laughs> Hi, Jenna. How are you tonight? I'm great. How are you? I can just feel the energy zapping through you through the Zoom, right? And seeing your I need to wipe myself off. Yes, it's great to have you here, Jenna. And tonight we're part of a panel and we're going to be hosting. We have three guests and potentially a fourth as we go. And real quick, I will introduce them. We have Philip Bailey, Arts Advocates, Isabel Brome from Mint Talent Group, and Catherine Ranzanoff of, I hear the dog, and Catherine Ranzanoff of Mint. Mint. So it's great. We're going to be talking quite a bit about marketing, digital marketing. And can you have everybody mute, please? Then, uh, so, but before we get going, real quick, I just want to give thanks before we move on to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown, and Tima Likes Music. There's only one place to go to for your band's business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. Remember, Managing Your Band 7th Edition is out now. And remember that the University of William Patterson has been ranked many times by the Billboard magazine as one of the greatest music business programs in the United States of America. So there we go. And it is great to have you guys. Jenna, why don't you take it away? Sounds good. Will do. Um, so let's just get right into it. We have about an hour to go through our panel portion. So we'll start off with each of you explaining a little bit about how you got into the business. I'm sure you can talk for hours on this, but just give us the Cliff Notes version of your music industry journey thus far. Um, we'll start with Isabel. Ooh, okay. Um, my name's Isabel and I participate in all things tour marketing for Mint Talent Group. Um, how my, I guess, live music or music industry journey started in Boston, where I actually studied um, classical music at Boston University. And then I happened upon a girlfriend that asked me to be um, on the street team for Bowery Presents. I worked for Bowery all four years through college, um, worked in the box office, kind of just tried every single internship and opportunity that they had there. Um, from there, I worked for Converse, the sneaker company, doing global music marketing for a year after school. And then from there, I tried some talent buying for a club in San Francisco, moved to Golden Voice San Francisco for three and a half years. And now I head up tour marketing at Mint. And that's my, my journey in, in a nutshell, I guess. That's awesome. You have so many different, so many different companies and areas, which is awesome. But we'll talk a little bit about it later. Uh, let's move on to Catherine. Hi, I'm Catherine Ranselhoff. 
I am the head of streaming and commercial marketing at MIC. Um, that basically means I handle all things DSPs, streaming platforms. Um, it's definitely been a winding road to get here. Uh, after college, I actually, I did not immediately go into the music industry. I was an econ major and ended up going to a big consulting firm right after graduation. I, so I did strategy and management consulting for a giant company, hated it. Um, always like had in the back of my mind that my dream job would be to work in music. So I started talking to everyone I knew who did anything remotely related to music, got a job at Universal Music Group doing business analysis. So like the most corporate, like dry side of the music business that there could be spending a lot of time in spreadsheets. Um, and that was at UMG at the center of all of UM Universal Music Group's labels. Um, I knew I wanted to be closer to the creative side of things. So I moved to a label. I went to Capitol Records where I was for about four years, started in a very data intensive role there doing um, reporting, analytics, kind of helping sales and marketing teams interpret and uh, act on streaming data, which was like at the time was still a relatively new thing. And we were trying to figure out what to do with all of the streaming data we were getting. Um, I transitioned from that role to more of a digital marketing role while at Capital, and then moved on to a digital marketing role at Rock Nation. Um, and that was my last job before Mick. So a lot of labels, and I recently moved over to the management side about six months ago um, at, at MIC. So this is my first management side of the industry experience. And just for if you're not familiar, MIC is a boutique management company. We have about 20 artists, mostly in the indie rock, singer-songwriter, indie pop space, but a little bit of everything. Perfect. Um, I just want to go over something you said before, but you mentioned DSPs. Can you just quickly explain what that is, if anyone on here doesn't know? Yes, I think technically DSP stands for digital service provider, but really people just use it to mean streaming platforms at this point. So uh, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, uh, Deezer, Tidal. YouTube, music, these would all be considered DSPs. Perfect, thank you. And we'll move on to Philip. Hello everyone, my name is Philip Bailey. I'm the president of a company called Artist Advocates. Um, I started in the music business when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area. Uh, when I was about 14, 15, I started playing clubs throughout Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco. Um, and ended up getting a, a band that got signed to a little indie label and did some touring and then ended up in another band that caught the attention of Lars Ulrich, the drummer from Metallica. And he signed us to a big major label record deal. Um, and we did that. So I uh, got to go tour with Metallica and bands like Slipknot and Slayer, all the, the big metal bands, um, everywhere from, you know, dirty clubs to big stadiums. Um, made a couple of records and then left that band to go do session work as a drummer, um, which uh, I got to do some great stuff working with people like David Bryan from Bon Jovi um, and Jimmy Allen, who wrote the first Puddle of Mud record. Um, that's what brought me to Los Angeles. Um, but eventually I got tired of being a sideman, but I had a very a large affinity for the digital space. I was a web developer at one point in my life. So I combined my passion for internet technology and music and started working on street teams. And I helped a company called Fanscape at the time build a street team platform for their rock division. So I ended up working with bands like Queens of the Stone Age and A Perfect Circle. Um, and at that point I got recruited by Universal Music Group's distribution arm to go lead a similar role over there. Um, essentially working with a lot of college students as interns and doing digital marketing. 
Uh, around that time is when Apple decided to launch a little service called iTunes and nobody knew what to do with it. So I raised my hand and said, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And that started about a 13 year relationship working with Apple across first universal distribution and then Concord records for nine years. And then uh, Apple had Capital Records recruit me to go run the Apple business for Capital, where I did that for three years of working with Catherine. Um, after about three years, I felt like I was a little detached from the creative side of things um, and the realized that I didn't necessarily mesh with the corporate major label music system. So I decided to pull the ripcord and I started my company, Artist Advocates, where essentially we provide marketing and label services for everybody from the DIY musician to management companies to indie and major labels. So right now I'm working with labels like Red Bull, uh, I'm working with Blue Note Records, Verve Records, and UME, which is Universal's catalog arm, and then a number of different management companies um, and independent musicians. You all are amazing. <laughs> we're only through the first question. I already know we're going to learn so much. So thank you so much. Um, okay, let's go over um, your current title and some of the main responsibilities and goals of your current position. And again, we'll start with Isabel. Um, my title is head of marketing at Mint Talent Group. Um, but I don't know, we're kind of, we're not like a non-title group, but we're just, you know, one team, one dream type of thing. So, um, that is my current title. Um, let's see daily responsibilities. I oversee all tour marketing for the entire roster. So we have around 200 clients on our roster currently at mint, um, all of which span from multiple genres. Um, we have a lot of reggae. We have a lot of jazz. We have, just a ton of different genres, but, um, I day-to-day -day work with lovely managers like Catherine, um, or other day-to-days, um, on tour marketing execution. So once the tour is routed with our agents internally, making sure that they are rolled out successfully, that, um, all of the, our, our managers marketing initiatives are met and, um, yeah, I mean, that's like a very broad answer, but it's a lot. It's really fun. I get to work with a lot of different types of artists and managers and different companies. So on top of that, since Mint is a new agency and we launched in 2020 um, during the pandemic, the other half of my day-to-day -day is making sure that Mint's brand marketing is up to speed as well. So I participate in a lot of that, managing our socials, managing um, brand activations that we participate in. So that's kind of the second half of my day to day. Um, but yeah, hopefully that was a good, okay description. Yes, it was perfect. So you mostly work with artists and their managers on a day? Mostly work with managers. Um, sometimes artists too, they can hop on calls, which they do frequently um, to just chat through different strategies. And we, we participate in a lot of marketing audits, just running through their digital presence, making sure everything's up to speed, ducks are in a row before a tour is launched. Um, but yeah, both hand in hand and obviously the agents internally. Of course. Yep. Thank you so much, Catherine. What are some responsibilities and main goals of your position? Yeah. So my position is head of streaming and commercial marketing. So I guess to streaming, anything to do with, with streaming on all of those platforms I mentioned before and commercial marketing just means marketing our music to those platforms, um, making sure our artists get the placements that they deserve, um, making sure that on all of those platforms, they are reaching all of their fans and as many new fans as possible. So a lot of the reason that I was brought into MIC management is because more and more of our artists are not working with labels or at least not major labels who have robust sales streaming marketing teams. So I am trying to bring some of those label services in-house at our management company. 
I have direct relationships with the DSPs. I tell all of those partners about the releases we have coming up, pitch them for playlisting, um, work with them on any bigger partnership opportunities. Like if, if we're, if we want to throw an event with a partner like Amazon, um, that's something I would work on. Um, I also help figure out the release strategies for our artists, like the timing of the singles and the albums and the pre-saves, all of that. I work with the label if there is one or handle it ourselves um, if there isn't one. Um, and there is a lot of, there's still a lot of data involved in my job. So I spend a lot of time in Spotify for artists, Apple Music for artists, um, all of those places and report any anomalies or whatever I'm seeing to the managers or the artists. Um, so I'm sort of the, the data steward um, as well as as well as the relationship person for all the DSPs. Awesome. I, I like that you talked about data because I know a lot of people know marketing, but I don't think understand, and probably myself as well, the importance of data with marketing. Um, are most of your marketing campaigns based on the data you collect with fans or listening strategies, anything along those lines? I mean, I definitely try to keep everything grounded in data. That is how I like to make decisions. I think a lot of a lot of people in music don't wouldn't call themselves data people or aren't like necessarily driven by quantitative things all the time but i i think i sort of act as the voice of reason a lot of times um we do just have so much data available to us now it can be intimidating to parse through what's important what's not what's signal and what's noise because we have just so much information from so many different platforms, um, whether it's consumption information, demographics, there's a lot that artists can find out about their audiences, but it is um, like a little bit intimidating. And sometimes people don't know where to start. So I try to be the person that like translates all of that for our managers and artists who uh, have better things to do than, than dig through data and make charts and um, play around with Excel. But I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm a data nerd at heart. That's good to hear though. <laughs> um, okay, Philip, what are your main responsibilities and goals? Um, well, as the owner of my company, I wear a lot of hats, um, you know, get the sort of the not fun stuff out of the way, which is everything from hiring, running payroll, um, paying taxes, <laughs> um, all, all those sort of things. Um, I do that too, um, but primarily um, we're a fairly lean operation. There's only three of us. So I'm pretty hands-on uh, in everything day-to-day. -day. I have a couple of people who are media planners, um, but a lot of my work is having conversations with the artists, finding out what their goals are, finding out what is important to them and helping to develop plans based on that. As, as a company, our mission is really to help artists tell stories. So it's a, a, like a very crucial part of what we do is digging in and getting those artists to help tell us what that is and making sure that their vision is complete. From there, we build marketing plans, we build strategies across, you know, a lot of the work that we do right now is audience growth, um, helping fans find their fan base. And you may think you know who that, that base is, but um, kind of to Catherine's point, data helps tell that story much better than anything else. Um, so we utilize a lot of different methods through advertising on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and YouTube um, to A, find those fans and then market to those fans and bring those fans along for the journey. Um, outside of the audience growth side, we're also doing product management, um, working on a couple big projects right now. We just wrapped up a project with the Velvet Underground last year. Um, we had a documentary that uh, was on Apple Music, working on another sort of high-level artist who has a pretty 
big anniversary this spring. Um, so we're working on a catalog release for that. But it, it's, yeah, across the board, it's, you know, it you can distill it down to helping tell the story of, of an artist and helping them spread their music to the audience. But, you know, there, there are a number of different steps involved inside of that. You were talking a little bit about fans, and I guess I just wanted to ask about, so obviously a lot of things cannot be done if artists don't have fans supporting them. Um, so you have your own data, but have you ever thought to, or at least have you already have gone straight to fans and asked directly about what they prefer, or is it more of just what you've observed kind of from the outside? Well, I think, you know, I am only an extension of the artist and what they're trying to achieve. Um, I feel that the artist is going to be much more successful having that conversation with their fans and having that two-way dialogue. And I think we're in a place today, which we didn't have when I was a kid, right? When, when I was a kid, you had a chance to maybe see somebody on a television performance or maybe go see a concert. But today, fans believe that they should have full access to an artist. And some artists are very on board with that. You know, people like Billie Eilish loves to talk to her fans. She talks about how important they are to her. And there is that interaction. So, you know, I encourage my clients all the time to establish that dialogue because it's only going to help them in the long run. People tend to underestimate or artists can underestimate the power of DMing somebody who just followed you to thank them. It doesn't take very long, but it goes a very, very long way. Because really what it is, is that, you know, we're in a place now, and there, there have been a lot of articles on it in terms of playlisting and what playlisting has done in terms of somewhat damaging that artist to fan relationship. People who listen to playlists, they're not engaging who the artists are. It's very passive. So even though they might hear a song that they like, what other steps are they actually taking to discover who that artist is, save that song, you know, follow that artist on Spotify, you know, searching them out on YouTube, following, subscribing them on YouTube. Those things aren't necessarily happening. So it's taking more and more effort for us to get those artists in front of people and then have those artists have those conversations with the fans. Cause we want those fans to be along for the journey in the long term. You know, I, I say it when David's heard me say this before, is that, you know, when an artist is doing what they're supposed to be doing, they're holding a mirror up to that listener and letting that listener see themselves through the artist. And when you can do that, that's how you, you solidify that bond for the long term. And that's really our goal, what, everything we do. Let me jump in for a second because, uh, Philip, you said something really interesting that I think ties into Catherine and ultimately Isabel as well. And it's when we talk about data, uh, I think it's very easy. And Catherine, you might be able to, to really talk about this, too, because um, I manage a few artists. And every day I spend a lot of time on Spotify for artists and I'll go to Amazon. Then I may go to Deezer. Then I'll go to Apple. And I record every day information about my artists. And in terms of looking at playlists, and I look at in a 24 hour period on particular songs, what playlists was that song on within a 24 hour period? And then I'll go deeper. And if you if you have one song in a playlist, you can see how many streams it got and how many listeners it had. And then you can put together. So what percentage of people are actually listening to, listening to this song more than once from that playlist? And then after time, you get to determine how what a good percentage is. You know, if it's 100 listeners uh, on that playlist and 100 streams, that means people are, like you said, passively listening to a playlist. And um, if you have a greater percentage of 100 uh, streams and 50 listeners, that means you know people are listening to it more than month, once, which is really great. But I guess where I'm going is um, the, the trend is we are so beholden to playlists like we used to be beholden to radio 20 years ago. Where Isabel comes in is she's part of the direct fan experience by an artist getting on stage in front of human beings. Um, that's the direct relationship that you're really going for. Yet the easiest thing is to jump on, a, you know, try and get on a playlist and pitch playlist, blah, blah, blah. So kind of want to see what you guys think about that concept, if you understand where I'm going. Because I, I think Catherine and I have this experience, at least I, I don't want to speak for you, but... When we were at Capitol, 
to see the amount of energy and weight put on playlisting for the Capitol roster. It, 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 it was crazy to see the, the feats that were, or the, the things that were done to get artists on playlists. And, you know, we're, you know, we're in a post payola world, but the, the number of dinners that I went to <laughs> um, and the, the amount of just kind of sort of schmoozing uh, to put it lightly to get, you know, artists on, on these playlists, whether those artists were ready to be playlisted or not, mm-hmm. because it became about market share for the labels. I think wh- one thing that's happened is that that sort of effort has bled out to the indie world. And so now everybody thinks that like the measure of success is what playlist you're getting on, which it, I'm trying really hard to break that. Um, I was on a panel a couple of years in Nashville at the last music biz before COVID. And that panel was called a playlist is not a marketing plan. A playlist should be maybe the cherry on top of a marketing plan. What are the steps across all the business units that you have, you know, if, you, if you're DIY, that's different. But if you're at an, even an indie label or have a team of people around you, what is happening in all these areas that are allowing you to reach your fan base and let them know that you have new music out? Playlisting is great to expose you to an audience, but it does not get you fans. And you only have a certain period of time to be on that playlist before you're even off. So it's, it's a very temporary thing too. I definitely agree. I think there has historically been too much emphasis put on playlisting. Um, and people still think people think my whole job is just pitching for playlists. If that were my whole job, well, first of all, I just wouldn't feel very good about that because I don't think that that is helping the artists in the long term. But also I, I think that I don't think that playlisting is is radio where it's all about whining and dining and maybe some payola. It is really driven by data. These platforms are seeing are seeing numbers and acting on those. You can't really trick them. They do know editors will react when they see organic growth happening for an artist. That's the best way to get on a playlist is to do the work and build an audience and someone will notice that and they don't want to miss out. So they put you on a playlist. They put you on a playlist because you're popping, you're something's happening for you elsewhere and you're a good addition to their playlist because you're cool. And you have fans who will then say, Oh, I'm going to like this playlist because this one of my favorite artists is on this playlist. Um, so yes, playlisting is not a marketing campaign. I could not agree with that more. It's, it's an, it's one of many tools and it is great if you can get on playlists you have if you have a big moment on playlists and playlists can get you a moment they cannot get you an audience or a career but they can get you a moment and you have to know how to capitalize on that once you have it once you have expanded your monthly listeners because you got on a big playlist what are you going to do how are you going to reach those people with new music or how are you going to convert them to fans? So like if I had to choose playlists or email lists, I would choose email lists hundred percent of the time. And I do sometimes remind people that that's where we should be focused is growing our, like Philip said, the direct communication between artists and fans. Um, things like email lists that we have control over of that the artists will own for their whole career. Um, that's so much imp- more important than something that a third party controls that you could just disappear from at any moment. Um, so like play- playlists are great, but we do have to be realistic about what they are. And I want to add, because Catherine said something really important and that the DSPs have gotten better and better at tracking music on their platforms. You know, I'm a a few years removed from the label system where I was talking about. Back then, it was a lot of editors that you're hanging out with trying to influence. Those editors have less and less power these days 
because the algorithms tell them everything. And so in, in fact, Spotify just let a bunch of people go that were sort of celebrity personalities within their service because those people cost a lot of money to keep on payroll, but their jobs weren't as useful anymore because there are algorithms that are doing the work for them. And I do want to say that one thing about playlisting before we go any further is that there are a lot of services out there who claim to get you on playlists and you can buy your way onto it. If just run away, they're all scams. Like 99% of them are scams. Stay away. And meanwhile, bringing Isabel into this, there's the catch 22 with an artist in which an artist knows or should know that the money is coming from live selling merch, selling tickets. And in order to get some good gigs and some good opening slots, you need an agent. And in order to impress the people who Isabel works with, they're looking for monthly listeners, which you, you need a lot of monthly listeners, so you need playlists. They're looking at uh, streams. They're also looking at you know what you're doing with your own shows. But I'm sure from the independent artist uh, aspect, they're trying to get every number, every data point as high as possible to impress the Isabels. So Isabel, from your perspective on, on the agency side, where do you stand with all this stuff that the, the, the artists are trying to do? And even some managers are probably trying to do the exact same thing as well. Um, I mean, I think with streaming, it's particularly tricky because sometimes it's hard to tell if it all translates into hard ticket sales. But um, that's not to say that obviously, like, they're not looking, our agents aren't looking at um, the charts and, and keeping an eye on artists that are up and coming or um, generally if they're trying to look for, I guess they've had their eye on someone specifically that's looking for a new agent. Um, but yeah, the up and comers, they're definitely like, if they're looking to sign baby bands, looking at um, those types of numbers for sure. I also think um, in the digital marketing space, at least we're in a really interesting spot on the live side, just because we continue to talk about how we put um, artists first, as far as taking data and giving it back to them. It's really tough with promoters as far as ticket buyers go, the artists don't get to see that data. So we have to come up with kind of new and exciting ways to gather data up front, whether that's like a registration campaign or working with companies like Seated or Audience Republic, um, where there's like sometimes a gamification aspect to those type of campaigns where people can like register for an exclusive presale password and share it with your friends. And it's a point system and it excites you to share um, over and over again. So we talk a lot about campaigns that we can run out of the gates like that. And then also um, gathering phone numbers because we talk a lot about how SMS is the future of marketing. Um, and I think outside of streaming, like I always like to look at that um, Spotify, Spotify for artists dashboard just to see like where the streaming number is the highest. Um, you know, we look at artists that are touring in like the 500 cap range and we see that their best market is San Francisco, but our indie show maybe isn't the best that it can be right now. Ticket sales in the COVID space are just like, there's no rhyme or reason to be honest. It's just like the wild west out there. So, um, I think we, we look at everything from a bird's eye view, to be honest, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of everything on the live side, but those numbers are definitely being looked at for sure. What about something like Light, L-Y-T-E, which I believe that's the company that is selling, if uh, they're selling tickets for for a future show, and if they sell enough tickets, then the band will go to that show. Um, is that how that works with Light? And then are they sharing that data with you? So they, um, in 2020, they were running a beta, um, kind of just testing out, similar to an RSVP campaign where you would put up um, specific markets with no venues attached to it, just to gauge interest as far as how many people would want to buy a ticket in those markets. Um, and then the idea is the agent goes and routes to those specific markets where people have bought tickets or are on a wait list to buy a ticket. They're not actually charged for it until the show is announced. Um, they get like a notification that just says, Hey, the show is announced and it's coming to the Terragram in Los Angeles, do you want to buy a ticket? And they just press yes or no. Um, actually, I can't go anymore, something like that. And this program is slowly being pushed into their 
other business model, which was um, once a show is fully sold out, you can get on a wait list to then be able to purchase the ticket in the future. So that is still very much in the live space. Um, they partner with massive festivals like Coachella and a lot of um, Golden Voice partners, then um, Newport Folk Festival, like a few others. They also partner with clubs. So anytime a club show sells out, a club is able to just turn on light so that people can sign up on a wait list to purchase a ticket in the future. Um, but I would say they're kind of phasing out the, the front end stuff for the artists um, just because I think they're focusing on, on the latter. So, but it's an interesting idea. We, we had for the artists that we onboarded for that, um, we had some, some awesome interest for, for pre-buying. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think um, where we're going and for everybody who's, who's listening is data is so important and it's very valuable, but it's also, it's not everything, but there's, there's a lot to it and you can easily get lost in data and do so much time spending data collecting that it almost becomes, yeah, I'm doing that instead of doing something that maybe you should be doing instead. You know, so don't let your search for the perfect data get in the way of doing something creative or trying to create or, or, or networking or do some relationship building with people because it still comes right. down to that. Um, well, I think it's also about being able to distill the data down to the things that are actionable, right? We get inundated with so much information. What's, there's, what's, what's the, the, the saying is like, we're, we're searching for knowledge, but we're drowning in information. Like that, that's that's the system that we're in right now, right? And like, you know, that's, well, luckily we have people like Catherine who can, who, you know, when we were at Capital, she did a great job of being able to like pull the right information out and say, look at this, this is what we need to focus on. And there aren't enough people out there who do that. And I, I see it a lot, a lot where people just pull information, try and just to try to tell a story that, you know, make the data fit the story that they want to tell instead of following the data to let the data tell the story. So we're still in that in that situation when there's a lot of work to be done. You also need to let the data tell the story as well. You can't say a trend is taking place in 24 hours. It's just, it's such a tiny snapshot. You know, you really like with Spotify for artists, it's giving you 28 days. That's a pretty decent snapshot. And then, you know, you can go make some custom range things as well and check things out, but you really need to give something time to like even Isabel, if you do um, put put a, an on sale date, uh, and if you don't sell out every venue on the the date that everything goes on sale, it's not like that tour has failed. It's it's only again a snapshot of that one 24 hour period, and you have time to really see what you're going to do, and you have plans for that, right? Yes, absolutely. On sales, I, it would be lovely if they all sold out all at once. That would make my job super easy, but um, not usually the case unless it's a blowout, which is amazing. Um, but you can generally gauge, you know, like I said, during these times, like we're navigating some pretty tough waters right now with consumer confidence. Um, it's tough to figure out who feels comfortable going to a show and who doesn't if they're indoors in the middle of January. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we think of everything in phases on the live side. So announce an on-sale maintenance and back end. And we just keep plugging away, sell those tickets. I guess like maybe I should explain what those phases mean if that's helpful. Okay, cool. Announce an on-sale is just you're putting up the tour, you're announcing it. Um, generally, depending on who the artist is and how they want to roll it out, it's about five days in between announce and on-sale. I have a lot of managers that love to announce on Tuesdays instead of Mondays um, and then going on sale on Fridays. Um, and then from there, see how the tickets sell at on sale. Obviously at announce, you can run um, like reach campaigns, brand awareness campaigns. Um, I love to run event responses, which are generally just, you take the Facebook event um, and say RSVP below for more information. And then you can pop the presale password into the Facebook event, and then you're able to retarget those folks later on, um, which is great for capturing data and retargeting those folks down the line. Um, since there's not like a concrete CTA um, or like tickets are on sale now, and there's nowhere, no way for them to convert during the announce period. 
and then obviously at on sale, um, I kind of go with your budgets. It's a little tricky these days. Everyone's spending their money on the back end now, just because everything seems to be a little bit more late buying in, in COVID times, but maintenance is generally like two months out, maybe depending on the genre of the band, like reggae tends to be a little bit more late buying, meaning people will buy tickets two weeks out or one week out or day of show. So we like to spend most of that money um, closer to the show, but I still think it's important to run those maintenance campaigns to stay in front of people's eyeballs. Um, and then, yeah, back end is just like two weeks before the show, 14 days. One quick thing before I ask my question though, um, Kate, she is actually in the zoom right now asked a question. Uh, she sent it to me asked how long the planning would take for a tour before the announcement, um, probably addressed to you, Isabel. <laughs> Sure. I mean, it kind of depends, to be honest, like if they're touring on cycle or off cycle, um, depending on where they're at, as far as new music goes, um, things are in the works far before it gets to me. So if the agent's routing, it means something's coming down the pike. Um, and I'm given usually if it's like freaking awesome. And I get a little bit of time, like three weeks to a month, if it's like, really coming down to the wire. Sometimes I have a week to get everything together and alert promoters that it's coming down the pike. Um, but I'd love generally to have two weeks to get everything ready to go. Um, but yeah, things are, once it's being routed, I'm generally given a heads up just so that I can start to prepare. I thought <laughs> I saw her put up a little heart. <laughs> uh, okay. I did just want to go back a little bit. Um, Philip, when you were talking about, um, your time with, Apple Music and how that kind of changed your career and your journey so far. Um, just to Isabel and Catherine, have you had um, a moment or an opportunity like that, or maybe a series of opportunities that you didn't know where it would go, where it was going to end up, but you did it anyway, and it ended up changing your career? I mean, I feel like every, every, career sort of pivot I've made has of course changed the trajectory of my career um but there I guess there have been a lot um I since I started out working I, I when I graduated college I didn't immediately start working in music I had not never had any internships in the music industry or anything like that so and then when I started at Universal Music Group in what was then Universal Music Group distribution, um, very much like kind of siloed in data world, separated from the actual labels and the artists and releases, I still didn't like really have a broad picture of the industry. So when I took the leap to go to Capitol Records, that was a big deal. And from there, everything sort of seemed to fall into place and like set me on a path. Um, and it did feel a little risky to go from the sort of comfort of, of, of a big company with a lot of structure to something less so. Um, and then from capital, I sort I kept moving to smaller and less structured companies. Um, and now I'm working at a management shop with only about 20 employees and 20 amazing artists, something I never thought I'd be doing in those first days at UMG, something that is way more attached to the creative side, more fluid um, than I ever even thought a job could be. So I don't know, I guess that was, there was really no one moment there, but a lot of small choices that, um, yeah, have led me here. Definitely. I, I understand that though. I feel like everything, everything, even if it may, might not seem like it made a big change, everything is even baby steps are putting you in that specific direction. So I understand that. <laughs> Isabel, did you have any, anything that kind of changed your career or trajectory, everything? Um, 
I, I would probably say I, I tried to just learn everything humanly possible within the live music industry, just because I think it's important to know everyone's job and everyone's role so that you can work well together as a team. But my biggest leap was probably honestly moving over to Mint just because um, I come from the promoter space. So it's definitely a new, it's new territory for me, but I'm really excited just because I think there's a lot of room for growth on the agency side when it comes to marketing instead of just putting up tours and forgetting about it um, and trying to grind out ticket sales. Like how do we create more efficient systems? How do we make sure that people get information as quickly as possible? What can we make automated? What can we not? Um, So yeah, I think like just moving over to the agency space was, was a big pivot for me moving over from golden voice where I was like working on, you know, amphitheaters, festivals, clubs, everything. Um, to working with a ton of artists, honestly, that some of, some of them are, you know, they're not on labels. They need extra help They're We could talk about anything from just organic social marketing to like my Facebook has been hacked for two years and I don't know how to get back into it, stuff like that. Um, and it feels like good and really fun. It's fun to work with, with managers and artists on the day to day. So I'm enjoying it. It's definitely a pivot, but it's been really cool. Sorry, I have a dog that is just, if you hear weird noises, he's over there. That's okay. We appreciate the dogs in here. <laughs> Let me um, ask one thing. Um, Kath, Catherine, a while back, brought up the idea of email lists. So I want to ask all three of you, um, as a college professor by day, I know my students don't check email that much. <laughs> They haven't for years. And are we fooling ourselves to think that when they graduate college, they're suddenly going to be email friendly? Or is their consumer habit, like you mentioned, um, SMS texting and DMing? So between the three, um, thinking today and three, four, five years from now, what, where is the, the place to collect information where you're not wasting time? Is it the email list? Is it DMs? Is it text messaging? What do you guys think? This is a a good question. And I want to correct myself because I don't want to seem like out of touch. Um, I did say email list, but I agree that that is not the like end all be all form of communication, especially going forward. But I, I did just sort of mean that as a proxy for any like direct to fan communication channel. So yes, I think that email lists will still have a place in marketing campaigns, but also SMS services like community or subtext um, are a couple that I've used and Discord servers. Um, we've had a, f- a few artists start Discord servers lately that have been really cool. Um, they're like a lot of engagement from the fans and have actually played really important parts in some of our rollouts. So yeah, those are, those are the three that come to mind for me. Yeah. I think it's a challenge because it's, you know, we're so reliant on third-party platforms to communicate with our fans. And like, I, I, as somebody who just bought their first home, realizing the power of equity is really key. And that's, you know, yes, email is tough, but you own the email address. Like you, you have access to those people. You don't have to pay to reach out to those people, you know, and even, even SMS marketing, there's still, there's still some pain points there on the, on the artist level. You know, I I had a call with a client yesterday, just like, I, I can't afford community anymore. So it's, you know, having to pay to reach your fans is a real big bummer. And, you know, when Facebook's really started clamping down on the ability to reach your fans a couple of years ago and seeing the frustration that people have, and they always dangle the carrot like, Oh, for 10 bucks, you can reach this many, uh, reach this many of the people who already follow you. (laughs) Um, That's really frustrating. And I I don't think there's an easy solution to it. So my, my take on it is like, you have to think of it as layers, right? And there's everything from TikTok to Instagram to Facebook, even Snapchat in some instances. Um, 
you know, to email, to, to SMS, if you can, if you can do it, you, you've got to try to fill in the gaps any way you can. And that's, that can be a little intimidating and overwhelming. And that's, that's why hopefully you can have a, a team of people to help you take some of that stress off. It also feels like with email, I have like, this might scare some people, but in my Gmail, like 8,000 unread emails, I don't even know what's in there. But if I see an email from Leon Bridges, I'm going to open it. I'm like, yeah, I love him. I love his music. Like I want to see what his merch looks like. I want to buy that for Christmas. Like I'm on board because I'm a fan. So I think there's still a lot of value in email lists, even though people are like email is in the past. Also keeping in mind that first party data is gold in like all worlds of our artists. So the bigger your list, the more people you can retarget that are like core fans, right? Like we talk so much about who are core fans. Um, and then also that plays a large role in like brand partnerships and stuff like that too. There's a lot of technology out there where, um, they can anonymize email addresses and match them with purchase history and like Experian data and things like that. Um, and figure out like a stick figure fan is more likely to purchase marine layer, like very hypothetical example. Um, but I think there are so many interesting things that you can still do with an email address as sketchy as that sounds. Um, and a newsletter is one of them and sending your fans an email is one of them, but there's, there's also like a world of things that you can do with your, your email list. And it's not just, uh, I I was going to say just not just email, but like you can take that to Isabel's point. You can take that, you can create a Facebook audience out of your email list. You can dump that into Facebook ads manager and it will match up those email addresses if that's the email address they use for their Facebook account. And then you can target those people on Facebook. So you don't even have to necessarily send the email, but you can, it's, it's, a, it's a data point that allows you to connect to them on another platform. Yeah, and I was gonna say, by the way, if it also may depend upon the artist in the audience. If you're James Taylor uh, or, or Carol King, you know, or Hart or somebody, you know, their audience is on email, you know, um, our audience here isn't as much. So, um, we're running out of out of time. Um, Ava had a couple questions, which kind of can tie in to Jenna's final question. So, Jenna, why don't you ask that and see if you can finagle it so that we get to Ava's question in there as well? Perfect. Um, I see Ava's asking about DIY artists, so it definitely works perfectly. Um, was just gonna ask what advice you all have for independent artists if they're looking to market their music and their shows on a tight budget, what would be your best piece of advice for them? I feel like creative content is like, I mean, just being your authentic self, like stay true to who you are as an artist. And I'm always looking at like, regardless of your follower account stuff on Instagram, just like people are going to resonate with your, like your art and like your artistry, if you're authentic on socials and I think you'll just continue to grow if you're authentic in, in that way with creative content. And I don't know. I mean, like we have an artist, Neil Francis, who's the perfect example. Like all of his bandmates are super like kooky and they do funny skits to like promote shows. And it's just awesome. You know, it's like that will resonate with a fan. Like we don't even need to spend money on that because you can just post it and it'll help push tickets. So um, that's that's my thought. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a one size fits all answer to that. I think that when you are starting out and especially if you have a limited budget, try all the places that you can go to for free. So like try all the social platforms, just get your music in as many places as possible. All the there's new streaming platforms like new sort of web3 based streaming platforms for artists to share their music um, that are just developing and people are hungry for new artists to like own those spaces. So put your music and your content in as many places as possible and see where it works. Um, Build a, try to build a community wherever you naturally find an audience. Um, It doesn't like, it's, it does at this point, it takes a lot of money to become a huge artist on Instagram or TikTok even, but there are other places that you can, you can find fans. So maybe just get, uh, 
get curious and sort of explore the internet more and find a niche where where people are looking for artists like you yeah isabel and Catherine nailed it it's just be yourself find your tribe and figure out where yeah what platform you know i have some clients who their instagram following is maybe a couple thousand but tiktok they're like fifty thousand right they're like your voice is gonna resonate in different ways on different platforms because those platforms have different audiences and but I, I think you know money aside make sure you know what story you're telling and if you're telling that right story you're going to connect with someone and i would rather have 500 fans who hang on every word you say than 50,000 fans who don't really engage you know, if you can turn 500 very engaged fans into into a decent career. And if, if you can make it work with them, you can you can incrementally grow that base over time, especially as you, you better identify who those people are who are coming to you and resonating with you. Well, everything you just said resonates with us. And we actually need to wrap it up. And what I can't believe it took until that last question for the two for the word TikTok. To be stated we went this whole time without talking about TikTok, which obviously means we needed another like five hours to, to get into this so thank you catherine for uh for bringing something up like uh, that yes yeah. i'm also surprised i'm also surprised it took this long for TikTok to come up i, I know late we're we're all lame and of course everybody watching is criticizing us <laughs> thank god they're muted but um we need, do need to head out of here um, from for the pot panel session. So uh, I want to thank Jenna Vitali for co-hosting with me. Thank you so much, Jenna. Wonderful job. Wonderful job. Very good. Um, Philip Bailey of Artist Advocates. Thank you, Philip, for joining us today. This is your second time on Music Biz 101. It was tremendous. Thank you, Isabel Brome, for being on this. Can you guys hear me? I froze up. Uh-oh. Can you guys hear me? See me? We can hear you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Everybody froze on my screen. So I thought it was me. So it's always me. It's not you. Every girl I ever did. That's what they say. But thank you, Isabel Brome, for uh, her second appearance on Music Biz 101 and more and giving us delightful words of wisdom because she's a very smart person. And then Catherine Ranzahoff, first time here. We're going to get you back, Catherine, because yes, you did pass the test and you're worth a whole episode. <laughs> just I know. How stressful. I told her yet. I told her yesterday, if she blows it, we're never going to even talk to her again, but she did okay. So we'll, we'll get her back. So, so thank you. And thanks to everybody who joined us tonight. I hope you guys got something out of this. And again, this will be a podcast and a radio show, and you guys will be able to listen back as I will do as I walk the dog one early morning or late evening. So thank you very much for Dr. Esteban Marconi, who is not here with me. And for myself, I want to thank you. And at the end of every show, we do not say hello at the end of every show. Do you guys know what we say? We say, adios! Sweet, sweet dreams as you breathe And I am a breeze I wish you much success. I hope you bump a cigarette from the wrong guy. Hope you ruined your life. You could say I have spy. You would be right. Now I would never wish bad wishes on you. You lived a whole size of California. Maybe one day we can reconcile. I was California. Poppy's doing their job He's the West Coast Shaking you away all my life The West Coast Jokes right on the sea And do those California poppies Remind you of me To hide behind dollar signs. Now I would never wish bad wishes on you. You lived a whole size of California.